This is Joe Basso for MusicRadar.com, and I'm speaking with bassist Billy Sheehan. Let me start in with your, uh, your approach to the bass. Now, you started out uh, as, a, as a kid on the guitar, but very soon after, uh, inspired by people like uh, Tim Bogart, you, uh, you switched over to the bass. What was it about uh, Tim's approach to playing that uh, affected you so much? Good question. I uh, well, actually, started on guitar. It was just chordal things. I wasn't actually playing any lines. I, you know, I played, learned how to play a substitute by the Who and a well-respected man by the Kinks and Gloria by, at the time, Shadows of Night. Basically, just chordal songs. I didn't really didn't play any linear stuff at all uh, in my in my when I first started with the guitar. So. Uh, the reason I point that out is some people uh, get the mistaken impression that I somehow took guitar techniques and put them on bass, when in fact it was exactly the opposite has happened. Now that I've learned a lot of stuff on bass, I go back in guitar and try to duplicate it, but I'm not that good with a, I'm not as good with a pick as I am with my <laughs> fingers. But uh, the thing that really, actually I wanted to be a bass player initially, but it's harder to get a bass. And the guy that lived around the corner from me, Joe Hesse, he was a bass player and was a cool guy and a good friend of mine still to this day. And I remember he played me the uh, Vanilla Fudge record, and I just went nuts at how amazing. I, by then, I was already a bass player, okay. uh, or had a bass by that time. So I, I just went nuts on how amazing it was and uh, uh, how excited I was to hear somebody just do something completely different. Now, when people listen to that record now, you, you kind of have to remember you, we were listening to it with 1967 or so ears, so it wasn't a lot of low end, and the sonic qualities of it are much different than what you hear today, but... Still, uh, when I finally had the uh, good fortune to meet Tim, who's a wonderful guy and a good friend now, uh, he explained to me that it was basically just kind of his psychedelic take on Motown, wow. which I thought was really interesting because I'm a big Motown fan also, so I see why why I clicked on him. Now, but also I, I understand that uh, Jimi Hendrix was a giant musical influence on you. Absolutely. The first concert I ever saw, the uh, first rock show I ever saw was Jimi Hendrix and um he uh, everything he changed everything. I mean, nothing looked the same the next day. We would walk to school looking around. Hey, is this the same place we were in yesterday? It was a whole new world. And again, uh, looking at back there from now, it doesn't seem because we've heard it all and many times over. But boy, we had never heard anything like that ever or seen anyone play like that. And uh, it was um, Hendrix's approach to the instrument as a free form, an unconfined revolutionary, evolutionary, that really inspired me. Uh, sure, his guitar playing I loved too, but it was it was so much of the spirit of what Jimi Hendrix was. I mean, he was just the coolest person that had ever walked, and he still is, and I I, I, I would assert that anywhere, anytime. And um, he just attacked that thing with utter reckless abandon and freedom, and um, I like to think I tried to pick up some of that spirit uh, towards my bass. Not to make the bass into a guitar, but to approach the bass in a free-form way and not necessarily be confined. Of course, bass has its things that you must do, and it's got to be in tune. <laughs> you got to play in time, and you got to know about the bass drum and, and locking into it. You know, there's duties that you must perform, must perform perfectly in order to really get that get the foundation of the band solidly. But as far as the the other small percentage of bass where you really can can be free-form on it, the Jimmy was a huge influence on me. Now, when you started to sort of make the leap into, you know, quote-unquote, lead bass playing, inspired by people like Tim Bogart and uh, John Entwistle, um, did you did you have the feeling that you were on to something different that other people weren't doing? 
No, I was isolated in Buffalo, and I had no idea what I what I was doing was of any worth, any value, or good at all. You know, I was just just was, and it was kind of good because I really had nobody there to tell me, oh, that sucks, or hey, that's cool. You know, I mean, people enjoyed it. I say that, and I harp on that a lot, only because a lot of players today start off with all the frosting, never having put yeah. the cake there in the first place. And I, I really work hard to encourage that because uh, I think that's a big problem with a lot of players today is they don't do, to really understand fundamentals first. Now, for many years, you, you played a uh, Fender Precision bass. Um, yeah. What was, it, what was it about that particular instrument that you liked so much? Well, uh, it's the standard. The, the P bass was the standard bass that everybody had. Tim Bogert had one, but he put a Telecaster neck on it, or so I thought. So I got a Telecaster neck for my bass because I wanted to be like Tim Bogert. And it's a big 1968 baseball bat neck. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also love Paul Samuel Smith's sound from, from the Yardbirds with that super deep low end Gibson EBO pickup. So I bought one of those and put it in the neck position, made a dual output for two amps, you know, and. and uh, so I modified it, modified it, modified it. Uh, but ultimately, uh, for me, uh, I guess that's where, when you see an artist endorsing a product, that's where it comes in. Because when I saw, I saw artists play the the P bass, and I just thought, well, that's the standard. It's working for them, so it it should work for me. You know, if they can do it on that, then that's what I should be shooting for. So I, I wanted to emulate and and imitate. Uh, my heroes, and, and I, so I went with the uh, with the P bass. Now your first uh, full time band, Talus, was a, a power trio, and uh, you sang lead. You you shared singing lead in that band. I think a lot of people don't don't know still what a great singer you are. Does that surprise you? Oh, it's very kind of you. Uh, uh, <laughs> it does. I uh, I don't necessarily consider myself as a singer, but I you know when I got in in uh, the early versions of Talus, basically. Hey, it's a three-part harmony. We need a third part, and you're standing there. There's the mic. Go, you know. We didn't we didn't really think it through too much, and eventually I, I started singing lead stuff and and what have you, and worked on it. And um, I uh, I love to sing. Uh, we we did a uh, I did a national uh, guitar workshop clinic last summer up in uh, Milford, Connecticut, or Milford or something. Mm-hmm. Milford. And it was a, it was a college town up in in, in the northeast there. And I did my bass clinic, and we hung out, and it was nice and cool, and I told, talked about my bass stuff. And then afterwards, we went to a restaurant, and a couple of people showed up, and I, I said to the, one of the young ladies, I go, you got a guitar? And she goes, yeah, so my car, I go, bring it in. That was about 6.30 in the evening. At about 1.30, we ended, and we sang and played all, I had the guitar, and we sang all night long. And it's so much fun, and so enjoyable, and I, and I kind of did it in a way, a lot of kids from the clinic were there to say, you see, this is the whole purpose of all that. <laughs> this is what we're doing it for. And we just had a riot, singing everything you could imagine, Beach Boys, Beatles, Grand Funk, Railroad, Cross Beatles, Nash, Street Dog Night, you name it, we had a riot. Now, you know, you had a, a really incredible, successful career, but, you know, with the band Talis, it seemed you guys were always on the cusp of breaking big, but you never did. Was that yeah, a, it was, was, that it was very frustrating. Here? We actually had John Kolodner come to see us play when we opened for Van Halen. And I remember looking over and seeing him standing on the side of the stage, jumping up and down in joy, and, insane, and getting to getting, say, this is the best live band in America, blah, blah, blah. We called him a few weeks later, so well, what do you think? Well, we're not really interested in signing you guys. Oh, man. <laughs> And we, we showcased for Clive Davis personally. We had Clive and three other guys sitting in a room in New York City in a rehearsal place, and we went down there and played. And they loved it. And they said, do you got any 
other material recorded. So we went back on, we recorded it, sent it down, and they go, well, this is great. We, we really like it. Now, how's the band live? And this went on back and forth three or four times. You found this ain't going nowhere. And, of course, it was, it was a very frustrating thing. But, you know, we learned a lot, and I, I'm, I'm really glad for the experience. And uh, we, we do, we, we're trying to get together the, the summer for another talent show maybe in Buffalo. A lot of people, of course, know you from your work in uh, the David Lee Roth Band with Steve Vai, of course. Fill me in here. There's a story that you almost joined Van Halen at one point. Well, uh, I've spoken with Ed and with Dave at various points through the year. They've had come to me. They've, they've talked with several bass players. Uh, uh, they spoke with Jeff Berlin at one point and Tim Bogart, too, I believe. Uh, and I think they were feeling it out because, in my humble opinion, uh, maybe there was some frustration within the band, and they may have thought, mistakenly or otherwise, maybe not mistakenly, that if they changed a member, things would do better. That's complete speculation on my part. I was honored and privileged and thrilled that they would ever even consider me. Uh, and uh, that was that was very nice. Van Halen are the greatest. I love that band. I love those guys. And uh, uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out. So, you know, onward and upward. But, uh, yeah, we did speak about it uh, several times. But, uh, you know, as much as it would have been great to get that gig at any time in their history, I got to say, in fact, you know, I, I, I would have hated to see the band change members because a band is really never, in my mind, as a fan, the band is just never the same. Even if they, you know, you know, they fire the drummer and get a better drummer, to me, he's not the same guy, you know, so it doesn't, uh, it's a frustrating thing because I would have, oh God, I would have, it was my dream gig for my whole life. That's why when Dave finally called me, I just said, yep, you know, it took me one second, uh, less than one second to decide that. You know, because it was close enough to Van Halen that I, I jumped at it, but uh, uh, it would have been great. But but still, I, I hate to see a band have to change members. I, l- I like it when it's the original lineup, and there's of course exceptions to that. But uh, but uh, it was a it was a great honor to uh, even to to hang with those guys, to tour with them, and to know them at all. I, I love them dearly. In the uh, late '80s, of course, you were in uh, Mr. Big, um, and you had a. a a big hit in America with the uh, song uh, To Be With You, but you guys really became massive in Japan. Um, to what do you uh, attribute that? Well, um, I attribute it to uh, kind of the, the spinal tap syndrome. A lot of people think when you go to Japan, it's automatic. You go there, and they're just going to love you, so no matter what you do, because you're... And to me, it's a little uh, it's a little tinge of, I wouldn't say go so far as to say racism, but culturalism maybe. <laughs> to think that they don't think it through and like what they like because they it's good. So people think, well, you go to Japan, you're an American band, a couple of blonde-haired guys in the band, you're going you're gonna to kill. Not true. It's simply not true. So when we went to Japan, we worked our asses off. We shook every hand, kissed every baby. Every autograph session, we arrived early, left late. We did every time the company said we got some promo do you guys want to do it you got yeah and give us more you know we, we just really went out of our way and when we played we they were so responsive to us initially that we really gave back we really pushed back and we really tried our best to uh you know really give them the absolute best we had not that we wouldn't everywhere but we just didn't want to we never took it for granted and thought it was automatic because we were an american band and now we're going to automatically be huge there uh, it's just not true. I know some bands. I remember speaking to a very, very famous drummer in a very huge, famous metal band, saying to me, "Yeah, we went to Japan. It was boy, the audience just sat there in between the shows. It was, uh, 
it was kind of a drag, don't you think? And I'm thinking, geez, we've had girls pull their tops off in Japan, which is unheard of. And and the audience be so loud, you know, we had to think of new ways to intro the songs because we couldn't hear the count off. You know, it was uh, so so we we really worked hard, and they are just wonderful, fabulous people, and they do watch you like a hawk, and you are under a microscope. Now you've played with uh, with Joe Satriani and your friend Steve I on the G3 tour. Um, but at what point did it occur to you to form your own version of that, uh, B times three, the, 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 basically the bass tour? Yeah, it was, uh, that was Stu Ham's idea. Uh, Stu's a good friend of mine, a tremendous player. Jeff Berlin also, a very dear friend and a great, uh, spectacular player. Uh, Stu called me and said, let's do a B times three. And uh, uh, I said yes, and it, was, uh, it turned into, uh, actually the, one of the best things about that tour was hanging out in the van and telling stories and talking even about music uh and about playing and you know it was it was a uh, the D, uh, one of the best dvds that never got made <laughs> it would have been great because it was really and jeff is a very opinionated guy and he's talented enough to have a strong opinion and back it up you know he knows his stuff and it was interesting to see him and Stu uh added a little bit in a friendly, uh, fun, competitive way, and then me kind of being the, the referee in the middle sometimes, and uh, we had a ride. It was just a fantastic time, and uh, it was uh, a great experience to, to be able to watch Stu play every night, watch uh, Jeff play every night, and I get up, do my thing, and then play together. It was very cool. Now, let me ask you about that, um, you know, B times three. I mean, can, can there be something as too much bass? Oh, see, asking a bass player, he'll say no. He'll say no for sure. Uh, yeah, there can be if you don't orchestrate it correctly. I mean, when you have 20 violins in a, I don't know how many, how many violins they have in a string section. When you have 20 violins, you say, geez, that's a lot of violins. That's got to be awful squeaky, you know. But when it's orchestrated correctly and done right, of course, it's beautiful. Same with bass. You can't have a whole bunch of low end just due to the nature of the size of the uh, frequency sine wave. Uh, it just things rattle around together. So you got to be real careful at how you place things. So when we play together, uh, you know, one guy takes one part, another, and you know, we stay out of each other's way and abbreviate our parts so that yeah. they are woven in between rather than just, again, like I said earlier, we're not playing on top of each other so much as playing with each other. So I'll step back and stop playing, you know, for half a measure or so, and then pop in with a little thing and then step back again and hear where it's going and then take it somewhere else and... It becomes very interactive, but if you've got three three uh, low E strings playing three different notes uh, behind you, you're you're asking for trouble. Now I I have seen a video of you guys doing Spinal Tap's Big Bottom. Yes. Um, and 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 you guys sing beautifully, but that just seems like the most perfect choice of songs for you guys. Yeah, again, i got to give credit to, to Stu for that idea. And it's funny because Jeff at first, oh, I don't know if I want to play Big Bottom, you know, because Jeff, Jeff is a jazz guy, and they, rightfully so. He's just a brilliant player. But eventually we got the, we got him in, into the comedy mode, and he is also a hilarious guy. So we, uh, when he sings, I want to sink her with my pink torpedo, the whole place split a gut. It's hilarious. It is a really funny video, but you guys do really do the song justice. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it, was a, it was it was a cool uh, it was a cool thing, and you know, I, we uh, a lot of my playing, I, I a lot of my songwriting and playing is very very serious to me, and but also I, I really try to yin and yang the balance it out with a with a, I'm, I'm an amateur stand-up comedian too, so. <laughs> well, well, speaking of your own playing, um, now I understand you're recording a, a new solo album. Yes, I am. Right as we as we speak, practically. 
What uh, what can you tell me about it? Um, are you are you singing all the tracks on it? Uh, what can we expect? I'm going to do about 50-50 like I did on Cosmic Troubadour, uh, my last solo record. Uh, I'm going to have a couple guests on there. Uh, I haven't gotten... The only guest so far who's actually played uh, has been a brilliant solo by my good friend Paul Gilbert from Mr. Big. He did this great solo and a, and a really cool instrumental piece. Just great. It was uh, wonderful working with him again, too. He's just a great guy. And um, uh, a couple other singers and uh, guitar players I might uh, try and add on here. I don't want to mention his name because they, they actually haven't done it yet. And, okay. you know, about how that goes. Somebody at the last minute can't make it, and then I, it looks like uh, I was being untruthful. But uh, other than that, I'm uh, singing uh, about half of it. And uh, I also did one piece on there. Uh, which is actually a, a, a ver a, a, an adaptation of a viola solo from the Brandenburg Concertos. And uh, I, l I learned pieces of it way back in the 70s. I used to always fiddle around and try and pick off Bach lines and ideas by ear because I don't read music and don't know any theory or any of that stuff. So I had to rely wholly on my turntable's ability to slow down to 16 RPM to uh, be able to pick the notes off, and even then it was questionable. So I went back and revisited it and actually learned the whole thing. Speaking of releases, now I know you've had a long association with um, Yamaha and your uh, Attitude bass. Yeah. But I understand you have a new Billy Sheehan bass from Yamaha coming out uh, this summer, I believe? Exactly. Yeah, we, um, well, they did the version 3 of my Attitude bass, which is my main bass that I play all the time. Basically, in version three, they did silver-soldered electronics. Uh, my name is finally on the bass, okay. and a couple little different cosmetic things. So it's basically the same uh, bass. Uh, it's done two different colors now. We've done uh, this would be our sixth-color combination we've done on this bass, and um, uh, that, that's that's my stable rock-solid bass that I use all the time. Now, when I first started with the Yamaha, I did a BB series bass, and the BB series has always been very popular with the Yamaha. It's a great instrument. I'm holding one in my hand right here now. Oh, wow. And they have a... So they did a BB series that was uh, adapted from my very first Yamaha that I did with the company back in uh, 86 or so. And I remember that was the bass that I held on the cover of Guitar Player Magazine when they were mm -hmm. kind enough to put me on the cover of that. And I won their poll and stuff. And it was pretty cool. Uh, I think I had it on the cover of Guitar World, too, at some point. Uh, I, I have it up on my wall, uh, the, the blow-up of that uh, cover. But um, it, it was one I used to, during the Roth uh, era there. So they, they, they did a version of that bass, and it's just a really slick, smooth, silky, solid uh, uh, piece of work. Uh, Yamaha's quality control is second to none. We put a, a, a neck position pickup on it, so it had really just tons and tons and tons of super low end. And... Uh, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful instrument. I'm, I'm really enjoying. Now, now I understand the idea behind this bass also is to make it more affordable to the average player. Yeah, because the attitude bass, it because it's a special thing when you're doing it in the production line. You can't just, uh, you know, uh, pop out, pop them out by the hundred, and so therefore the the production uh, takes a lot more. So the bass inevitably ends up costing more. Uh, and a lot of people use the attitude bass. I get email from people every day from all over and. I want to start an attitude-based player's website so we can all, you know, mm -hmm. uh, network and trade parts and tweaks and stuff like that, which I will do. But the uh, the, the BB series is a little bit more in line with what Yamaha does as, as its normal production. So the costs are down without the quality being compromised at all. And uh, 
it's just a rock-solid, beautiful bass. A couple of people have come over and tried it out, too, and uh, everybody's given it a thumbs up. It's very cool.